This week on One Body Stewarding God's Creation, Catholic Answers apologist Tim Staples talks about living the supernatural Catholic faith. He is being interviewed by Divine Mercy Radio's Board of Directors member, Cody Marincer. Hello and welcome to the One Body Show. We are quite blessed to have a very special guest with us today. He is a convert to Catholic faith, an author, speaker, an apologist with Catholic Answers, and uh, probably doesn't know this, but has been a huge help and inspiration in my own life. Um, We are blessed to have Mr. Tim Staples in with us today. So how are you, sir? I am doing well, and it's great to be here. That is awesome. You know, I... Um, I'm a convert myself, um, and so I've listened to lots of Catholic Answers over the year. Um, I taught high school kids for 10 years, um, and so I teach right. religion and theology. Catholic what were Answers you before? Backup. Um, so I would be, uh, be considered like an evangelical. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. Yeah. They make great Catholics. <laughs> Sometimes, yes. <laughs> so yes, used used Catholic answers, used a lot of your stuff a lot in teaching class. You know, you, even after 10 years, you, you think you've heard everything and you haven't. Yes. So you got to look. So, and so I, definitely that was a go-to. So I appreciate all the work you do. And Praise God. You know, so I, maybe just to break in a little bit sure. here is uh, what, what brings you here? Um, how in the world did you get to Hayes, Kansas? <laughs> yeah, what in the world am I doing here? <laughs> you know, I, I gave a talk earlier to a local high school, and I said, you know, if you would have told me about 37 years ago that one day I'd be traveling the world defending the Catholic faith, I would have first laughed my head off before I tried to cast a demon out of you because, <laughs> you know, this is the last place in the world I thought I'd be because from the time I was eight, nine, ten years old, all I ever heard about Catholicism was y'all were crazy, and that would be a compliment compared to, you know, Whore of Babylon, Satan's greatest masterpiece, you know. And, and you know, it, it, I think it's important to say that in my mind and in my heart, I so believed that the Catholic Church was just crazy. I, did, I, I didn't think y'all were even Christians, you know? You're worshiping mm-hmm. a cookie and worshiping Mary and the saints and, and kneeling down in front of statues. I mean, you're a bunch of pagans, you know? And so it was just so far f- f- from my mind of even considering Catholicism. I mean, the, it was, I really had a desire to bring as many Catholics as I could to Jesus, to get them out of that dead, dried-up Catholic Church. And so, you know, when I, I first, as you know, when I first encountered my first Catholic who really knew his faith was when I was serving in the United States Marine Corps. And it was my last year in the Corps back in 1986 when I met Sergeant Dula. And and he rocked my world. Like I said, first Catholic I, that I'd ever met that really knew his faith. And he he started answering me in ways I had never heard before because normally when I would share the faith with Catholics, they didn't know anything about their faith anyway. Mm-hmm. But this guy started responding, giving me intelligent reasons why he believed what he believed. And, and he did something else that I recommend highly. He would give me books. You know, there were times when I'd stump him. And we argued, like, for a year straight. You know, I mean, we just went at it. There were times I'd stump him, but he would go back to his spiritual director, Father Ron Gillis, who was an Opus Dei priest, just died a few years ago, a wonderful, wonderful, holy, knowledgeable priest, two PhDs, brilliant guy. Uh, or actually, he was a doctor of canon lawyer, law and a doctor, a doctor in theology. I mean, the man was absolutely brilliant and holy. And so he would give answers to my buddy, 
and and he would give him books, give him this, give him Faith of Our Fathers by James Cardinal Gibbons, give him Ludwig Ott's Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma, The Church Teaches by the Jesuit Fathers of St. Mary, Lightfoot's Apostolic Fathers, get him, get him reading the Fathers of the Church. And I, I mean, I, I literally had a book, uh, I should say a stack of books about, well, the folks can't see my hand <laughs> no. right here, but I mean, uh, uh, about a four-foot-high stack of books by the end of that year. And I'll tell you something, brother, I read every single one of them. I still have most of them. My, uh, my original Ludwig Ott, Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma, finally fell apart, I, but I had it all these years. I had read through it many times and had it all highlighted and everything. And you know, So you know, I was determined, brother, that I was going to prove Catholicism wrong, and that's basically why I'm Catholic. I kept studying and studying. I ended up going to Jimmy Swaggart Bible College to try to save my Catholicism. Met with a very famous uh, former Catholic priest who taught at Jimmy Swaggart uh, Bible College. That's a whole story in and of it itself. And and all the while trying to save my Protestantism, but there I converted. And when I did, oh my goodness. All heaven broke loose in my house, my my church, you know, kicked me out. My uh, my whole family thought I was absolutely crazy. But by God's grace, over the last years, in fact, it took about fourteen years after my conversion. But my whole family, my father, mother, three brothers, sisters-in-law, they're all Catholic. Wow! And from that time forward, I I just fell in love with my Catholic faith. When I became Catholic, I wasn't married, so I spent six years studying for the priesthood discerned that I wasn't called to the priesthood. I left the seminary in 1994, got married in 1998, and just celebrated my 23rd wedding anniversary with my lovely wife, Valerie. That is fantastic. And our seven kids. And so, you know, my kids are convinced that I made the right choice. <laughs> and that's how I, I got so here. I too. I would think so, too. But, you know, to answer that question, the, the, how I got here is yeah. once I left the seminary, I had all this education and and such, and uh, I went to work in apologetics, uh-huh. little, a little uh, radio ministry in Southern California back in 1994, before there was Mother Angelica's radio network. There was n- nothing. There was like three, maybe four radio sta- Catholic radio stations in the whole of the United States. It was nothing. In 94, I started on one little station out in Southern California. And, 94, and then three years later, Mother Angelica jumped into the radio scene. Yeah. And then it was Terry Barber and St. Joseph Communications, and then Catholic Answers, uh, not too long after that, jumped in. And man, has it taken off since 1997 when, when it started. How many years has that been now? 26 years. Now we have hundreds of stations, and that is how. I got to haze. <laughs> that is awesome. That, well, thanks so much for being here. I mean, even as you're speaking, I, I knew this about you. Um, it's easy for us to know about you professional Catholics more than it is for you to know about us. But uh, also, yeah, you know, as a convert, father of seven, um, so right. we can enjoy that together. Yes, yes. Um, but um, I know what the one really big thing that brought me to the church was the Eucharist. Amen. When, when I found out what that was, like you said, 
all heaven broke loose. <laughs> I like that. Yes. Um, because I, there, there was no stopping after that. I, I knew. Yeah. And I was like, how, how have I never known this before? Yeah. And so it may be just quickly, if yeah. you were to pinpoint one, one sticking point, was there one major thing that was kind of the last, okay, once I knew this, yeah. that was it? Yeah, I always say the big three are the Eucharist, the Blessed Mother, and the papacy. Yeah. You, you go, and the, the papacy, in a sense, is the biggest because that's what really makes us Catholic. I mean, the Orthodox have the Eucharist, yeah. and they have a lot of what we believe in when it comes to the Blessed Mother, the major dogmas, of mm-hmm. course, they, they agree with us on, but the papacy is the biggie. But I, yeah, it would be those three, I always yeah. say. The Blessed Mother was the last thing for me because that was the thing, especially the Assumption and the Immaculate Conception, I thought were just so crazy. But but probably, it, you know, as I, I'm going to share in my talk tonight when I speak to the college folks, um, the Eucharist was probably the – if you would have asked me what are my top ten – the craziest teachings that I thought, you know, Catholicism <laughs> taught, you know, probably six out of ten of them would have been Marian, but but number one was the Eucharist. I mean, you're going yeah. to tell me you're going to eat God? I mean, <laughs> obviously Jesus is speaking symbolic in John six fifty three. unless you eat the flesh, son of man, and drink his blood. I mean, that was so crazy to me. But that I would I would say, you know, even though the Blessed Mother was the last thing that, that was going to, in my mind, keep me Protestant. <laughs> um, and the the Eucharist, I had a particular sort of paradigm shift moment when I saw the truth of, of the Eucharist. I'm going to be talking about yeah. that, that tonight. The papacy was the most important because I, I got to one point where I'm seeing the truth of the Eucharist sacraments, justification by faith alone went out the window. I knew that was false. I praying to saints. I'm seeing all this stuff. I can remember thinking the papacy, I mean, wow, that would be wonderful if it was true because it seems like establishing a, a church upon a book just wasn't very smart because mm-hmm. <laughs> we have – Because we could mess it up. Really? Tens of thousands <laughs> of denominations. Yeah, I think yeah. we did mess yeah. it up. You know, but but there was just too many little things – that I still disagreed with, so I, I I'd have to go through all the you know one by one, and such. But but it all really came together for me when I first saw the truth of the Blessed Mother. It was like everything seemed to come together. Oh my goodness! When I saw the Immaculate Conception, for example, mm-hmm. and the Assumption, it was like. There we have it, and it and it, it you know it's kind of like it, it became this tapestry. You know, I think it was Frank Sheed who said theology is a symphony, and and it's true because just like in a symphony, you can have a beautiful symphony, but if one little thing's out of tune over oh, there, yeah. ah man, <laughs> does, does that hurt? In Protestantism, you know, I don't think we even believed it was possible to have a true symphony because. Of course, we're wrong about things, and and you know, basically in Protestantism, you do the best you can, try to find a church that agrees with you, and if you can't, you start your own. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that's just so out of touch with what we see 
in Scripture. When Jesus prophesied in John 10, 16, there will be one fold and one shepherd, mm-hmm. right? In, in Matthew 18, 15 through 18, you know, if your brother offends uh, against you, tell him his fault between you and him. Yeah. If he hears you, again, your brother, if, if, if you, he won't hear you, take one or two with you. If he still won't hear you, tell it to the church. I mean, and the one who fails to hear the church is to be as a heathen and publican. You notice Jesus, there's one church yeah. that has the authority to declare the truth and such. Protestantism, tens of thousands. I mean, it's just so crazy. I think in my mind as a Protestant, you don't even think that's even possible. And so then when you see it and it came into focus there yeah. at that one moment at Jimmy Swagger Bible College, I'll, I'll tell you when it happened was when – the first time in my life, I knelt down and prayed to the Blessed Mother because I was struggling, and, and man, I didn't want to be Catholic. I wanted to be Protestant. <laughs> I wanted to have my church with my nice-looking wife playing piano and singing while I preached the gospel. I didn't want this Catholic stuff to be true, <laughs> but it was the first time I knelt down and I prayed to the Blessed Mother. That's when it happened. It was like... The, the faith moved from my head to my heart. I think by that time I, I knew the Catholic Church had it right. It was more a struggle in my heart yeah. than my head anymore, but it was the Blessed Mother that brought everything home. And then, then you see, oh my goodness, there is one Lord. There is one fold. There is one shepherd. And Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Yeah. And then there's nowhere else to go. Yeah. Wow. Awesome story. Thank you so much for that. That's a heck of an introduction here, folks. And <laughs> we're just getting into it. Um, you know, but th- that is a really great introduction because as you're getting ready to go speak to uh, the college kids tonight, yeah, you got to speak at TMP this morning to uh, the high school kids. Uh, something that um, I have seen, especially with being able to teach and being around um, youth a lot, is that uh, we live in this age. Nobody can deny that we live in an age of moral relativism. Yes. Um, but also, I think we live in an age of just spiritual apathy. You know, the, eh, yeah. whatever. You know, and we hear in the book of Revelation, um, because you are neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Yes. At least that's my understanding is the original right. translation is. is more spew, vomit you out of my mouth. <laughs> that's, like, right. that's not a pleasant thing. No. And, you know, that means that... You're incompatible with Christ's body. Yes. And, and so, you know, that, that's kind of what, uh, you know, my question for you would be is, what are you seeing? What are you experiencing? Um, how, is, how do you see the, the culture affecting the church in those ways or other ways that is yeah. damaging to the spiritual life of our young people? Yeah, I, I think you're, you've hit it on the head when you, when you quote Revelation 3.16, because that malaise— is everywhere in in our culture and it's rooted in years of relativism Mm -hmm. of you know a steady assault against the foundations you know as the the psalmist says if the foundations be destroyed what shall the righteous do and so yeah I, I find the hardest thing to penetrate is that sort of indifferentism, yeah. that malaise that we see so prevalent, and especially among the young people, where they just don't believe in anything anymore. Nothing's real. They've been pounded, pounded, pounded now, and we have culturally for decades. And 
you know, folks don't realize when you destroy the foundation that is the foundation of our culture, Western civilization, which is the one holy Catholic and apostolic faith, that is the foundation of Western civilization. The United States has a, a, a sort of broken version of that, but at least we had as a foundation the, uh, some ideas of natural law. Yeah, it was John Locke's natural law, not exactly, not exactly defined, but there was a sense that there's a God who gives us our rights and the role of government is to protect those God-given rights. You know, a, a shaky foundation, but a foundation nevertheless, because ultimately, you know, you have to have the magisterium of the church if you're going to have a sustained moral absolute-ism in your culture, because you have to have someone who can speak for God. Yeah. Even though, you know, as you know, the moral law is knowable through the pure and natural light of reason at least in theory. (laughs) The problem is we're sinners and we're not all the sharpest knives in the tray. And so, you know, we need revelation to reveal to us not only those truths that are the mysteries of the faith that cannot be known through the pure and natural light of reason, but we also need revealed to us the truths that can be known through the pure and natural light of reason because we need to know it as Vatican I defined, you know, so beautifully with facility, that is with ease, with accuracy, and without the admixture of error. And without an infallible voice, you simply can't have that. So, you know, without that, you know, we had a, a, a somewhat weak foundation, but at least there was a sense of God and some sense of moral absolute. That is gone mm-hmm. in our culture today. It is virtually gone. And so how do you penetrate that? I am convinced. In fact, I'm giving a talk coming up at our Catholic Answers Conference uh, on how do you prove the existence of God. And I'm going to give some Thomistic proofs. I'm going to do some proofs from science. But my third point is, you know, I, I've been asked the question, you know, why didn't Jesus give us uh, a proof for the existence of God, you know, like Thomas Aquinas did. And and I chuckle when I hear that, but we really do get that voice. I say, he is the proof of the existence <laughs> exactly. of God. He is God manifest in the flesh. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, says, says Jesus. But I, I think the fact that that question is asked is telling, isn't it? Yeah. Because ultimately, the way you demonstrate the existence of God in the most profound way is with a life lived, transformed. That's what's going to change our culture. Is It's not so much Thomas's five proofs, which are, are beautiful. I use them. Yeah. I'm going to use them in my talk. They're wonderful. But I think Paul discovered it You know, when he went to Athens <laughs> in Acts chapter 17. So St. Paul is on Mars Hill, and, you know, he sees the shrines to all these gods, and, and he sees the one shrine that says, to the unknown God, and I am here to present him to you. You worship who you, you don't know. It's a, a profound way that St. Paul moves into the midst of all the Stoic philosophers and the skeptics that would have been there, and he presents a brilliant argument for the existence of God and then the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But you'll notice when he does that, and he's an apostle, okay, it doesn't get any better than St. Paul. 
and he had a few converts. Praise God for that. But right after he leaves Athens, where does he go? He goes to Corinth. And I love the way that when you look at the the letters to the Corinthians, St. Paul writes that when – and oh my gosh, it's beautiful when he says, when I was among you – now Paul is later writing, looking back, when he went to Corinth Uh and engaged them. He said, when I was among you, I determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. He said, my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of men's wisdom, but in demonstration of the power of the Spirit, so that your faith may rest not on the wisdom of men, but in demonstration of the power of the Spirit. So it's like St. Paul. I think St. Paul encountered what we're encountering right now in our culture. I imagine a so. A malaise. Yeah. Skepticism. And, you know, if you, if you look the way that discussion went on Mars Hill, once he got to the resurrection, they said, we'll hear you another time. And they basically <laughs> say, get out of here. <laughs> right? So, again, although he had some success... What happened when he went to Corinth? He went there and proclaimed Jesus Christ, demonstrated to them a life lived, sold out to Jesus Christ, and he transformed Corinth and created the Corinthian church, you know, rooted in the power of God. And man, I just think that lesson that Paul learned is the one we're learning. Yeah. Because how, again, how we're going to transform. Uh, our culture is going to be through more Mother Teresa's, yeah. you know, than than the intellectuals uh, demonstrate. Now, it's not that you know we're, you want you don't want to present an anti-intellectual message because that's not true. Tertullian, Tertullian was wrong. Athens has everything to do with Jerusalem, and Jerusalem has everything to do with Athens. But I do think it's a matter of priority that we have got to emphasize the importance of well-formed Catholicism, yeah. that if we're not praying every day, if we're not receiving our Lord well in the Eucharist, we are not going to accomplish the goal, because the goal is accomplished on our knees first. If you've been studying, studying, studying for years, and your prayer life goes away, well, guess what? It's time to put the books down and get back to what's most important. Get yeah. on your knees and pray. We're in a cultural malaise that only the supernatural power of God, the grace of God, is going to penetrate. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you, and here's why. I distinctly remember a conversation I had with a young lady in one of my classes. And now, now, first off, um, I'm sure you've been there, right, when you first – convert, you know, you're on fire and you just like, I'm going to convert everybody, (laughs) you know, and and you probably go at it a little bit too hard. At least I know I did. And I made a lot of mistakes there. And I apologize to any of those people. (laughs) I I did make mistakes. Um, But, you know, I also know that within teaching, you learn a lot throughout the years. My first couple years were probably pretty terrible. Um, And and I got a little bit better. But I distinctly remember one having a very good conversation with a young lady in class in front of everybody. And so I started um, using kind of like you saying, you know, Thomistic type of stuff. And, um, and I started walking her through a moral dilemma. And 
as we were going through it, I said, okay, does this reason with this, right? Does your point still stand? And she would say, no. So we'd go to the next point and say, okay, right. now does this point still stand if you use good reasoning? She goes, no. So we finally made it to where she had no reasoned answers left. And I said, so would you agree then that the only thing you have left to stand on is your emotional attachment to this? And she just goes, yes, but I'm going to still keep thinking that way. Wow, that's it. <laughs> and so I, I had it. to give her um, props for, you know, admitting that but still i would that was a very you led a horse to the water yeah i mean that was (laughs) that was a huge moment of clarity though like i can't do anything else like you were saying i can't it doesn't matter if i have all the reasoned answers in the world this young lady is only going to come to the truth through a living witness now because she's heard everything else and that's why take if folks need to realize all this craziness going on in the church you know, attacking the Pope and uh, especially his magisterial documents, which, you know, with Pope Francis, I've read everything. I love it. I actually love his magisterial teachings. But, you, you know, what folks don't realize is when you're attacking the bishops and attacking the, the Pope and attacking, and so often, I have to say, it's just mindless uh, ramblings, you know. Folks outside are looking. In fact, we've had, a, we've had several callers call into Catholic Answers. In fact, I'm thinking of one who called in and said, you know, I was, I was really thinking about becoming Catholic, but had all this stuff there. People are saying Pope Francis is a heretic, and I don't think I want to join a church like that, right? It's like, man, folks, we've got to get our oars in the water and act like Catholics here. And stop with the nonsense because that that kind of stuff is killing us on the on the world scene, and it's hurting. It's kind of like Zacchaeus, you know, he's trying to get to Jesus, but all the knuckleheads are in the way, <laughs> and he can't get to to Jesus. And so again, I emphasize we need a witness, and we do need a witness as a Catholic culture, and we've been greatly wounded. I mean, it started, I think, with the priest scandals Mm -hmm. that just devastated us. Because if you're not living the faith, I mean, you can preach till you're blue in the faith, but if you're not living it, now we're not perfect and we're not going to be perfect. We're sinners, but we've got to live the message because folks are tired of phonies. They see phonies everywhere in politics and everything else. And when religion, when, when that becomes phony, the devastation that results, man, I mean, we have really got to focus. Now, I can't, you and I can't heal all the pro- macro problems in the church <laughs> and, and, and stuff like that, but I'll tell you what I can do. I can make sure my household is lining up and my heart. Am I praying? Am I going to confession? Am I receiving our blessed Lord well? And let's all of us decide, you know what? It starts right here. The kingdom starts right here. Jesus says, not over here, it's over here. The kingdom of heaven is within you. Let's start today, now, with saying, I'm going to write this ship, that is Tim Staples, get my oars in the water, and Lord, in the image of Isaiah, I'm going to say, in Isaiah chapter 6, here am I, Lord, send me. And I'll guarantee you, you give me one Christian that's really sold out. Like, look what 
uh, St. Francis of Assisi did. Mm -hmm. One guy, Jesus called him, heal my church, right? Yeah. You need to heal my church. And things were absolutely crazy then, (laughs) much worse, Mm -hmm. I would argue, than even now. In fact, not even now. It's just much worse. We've gone through some really bad times, ninth century 10th century, and then there in in the 12th century, I mean, things were absolutely crazy. But you give me – and and you never know. You may be the next St. Francis of Assisi. There may be somebody listening right now that God will call through this little conversation we're having. I want you to heal my church. Yeah. And it starts with you. Maybe you need to go jump in a rose bush. I don't know, but <laughs> <laughs> I hope that's not what God's asking you to do. But whatever it is, let it start with us. Because I, I, I tell you, in the midst of all the craziness, political, in the church, culturally, transgender nonsense, the absolute insanity, what we're seeing today, people don't know what a human being is now. Nobody knows what a woman is, right? <laughs> you, can, you ask a Supreme Court justice, what's a woman? Oh, well, I'm not a biologist. It's a, I can't. My pay grade. Yeah, you know, it's <laughs> what? like, what? I mean, this is, we've been reduced to absolute tomfoolery yes. because we've rejected God. Yep. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. I mean, this is how far we have fallen. Well, guess what? It's time for us, you and I, to pick up the pieces, man, and say, here am I, send me. And I I just believe, and it's because of my Catholic faith, that you know we're going through a bit of Good Friday right now. Mm-hmm. But the, the bottom line is we know when we're going through the darkest times that resurrection is right around the corner. And I believe good stuff is coming. I want to be a part of it, don't you? Absolutely. <laughs> We need to take a short break right now, but stay tuned to One Body Stewarding God's Creation. We'll be right back with more about living the supernatural Catholic faith with Tim Staples. We're back on One Body Stewarding God's Creation. Living the Supernatural Catholic Faith with Catholic Answers apologist Tim Staples. Cody Marincer conducts the interview. As we talked about spiritual apathy and moral relativism and stuff like that, one thing that I do believe is, and once again, you being with the youth earlier, you being with youth tonight, this is a great time for saints to be made. Amen. Because we, what I have also seen is there are kids who are smart enough to look around and go, this can't be real. This can't be right. And they're tired of what I call, you know, the spoon feeding. They're they're tired of somebody shoving a spoonful of sugar in their mouth and go, eat it, kid, you'll like it. You know, and they're like, no, like, give me something with substance here. I I want something that I can chew on. I want something that is healthy, something that is true. Um, and so, you know, that part of it, too, I think, is is some of that silver lining that we see Absolutely. in times like this. Maybe not all is going to hell in a handbasket. <laughs> that's right. Absolutely. And it's like you said, that, you know, that's why I wanted to emphasize, you know, that when we, we talk about the, the importance of formation in the life of every Catholic, you know, you can't emphasize that enough. But the, part of that formation has to be intellectual. Yeah. Because you can't just run, jump, and, and 
screen, <laughs> scream, you know, praise Jesus, because, yeah, some people will be attracted to that, but that's not going to last. You know, there has to be an intellectual foundation, an intellectual formation coupled with that spiritual formation that, that really transforms and creates true culture. Yeah. Culture, which has at its root cultus, worship, the worship of Almighty God. You know, it's you know, immediately uh, Romans chapter 12 comes to mind where St. Paul says, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies living sacrifices, wholly acceptable unto God, that you may know what is the will of God, what is good and true and perfect, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds, right? I mean, it's just, that says it all right there, that, that when he says, you know, offer your body's living sacrifices, which is your, I love the, the Greek there, it says, which is your reasonable worship. It's actually logike, which is where we get the word logic, which is your reasonable, reasonable worship. I remember reading Cardinal Ratzinger years ago when he did an exegesis on that text, and it blew my mind because I hadn't looked at that Greek text in any depth, and and I immediately got my Greek New Testament and looked, and oh my gosh, there it is, it's logike which is your reasonable worship. And Cardinal Ratzinger makes the same point that Pope, that Pope, um, St. Thomas Aquinas makes in the Summa Contra Gentiles in Book 1, Chapters 7 through 9, where Thomas is talking about, of course, evangelizing Muslims and Jews and those who don't um, ha- have the faith. And he talks about how that there's there's here's an interesting thought brother he says when you're when you're evangelizing let's say a muslim but it could be an atheist it could be those who do not have the faith at all it does no good says thomas aquinas to present the mysteries of the faith to them because they don't have the ability to comprehend them because it requires supernatural grace he his recommendation is that rather than doing that, answer their questions about why they don't agree with it. And why is that? Because even though without the gift of faith you can't comprehend the Trinity, there's nothing about the Trinity that's irrational. So any errors they have concerning the Trinity, any, anything in their mind is that you can answer. You can show why their objection is not rational. Oh, that's, that's hugely important for, for apologetics and for evangelization. We know we can sit down with anyone because there's nothing about – we're not fideists like the Karl Barth, Martin Luther, who was the ultimate fideist. I know Barth is called the father of fideism, but he really got it from Luther because there's this, this anti-intellectualism that says, you know, the faith isn't uh, something that, that – it is necessarily reasonable. There, there says Barth, there are things that are irrational in it. You just have to accept. No, <laughs> no, there's nothing irrational in our faith. And so whatever the errant thinking is someone has about the Trinity, you can answer them intellectually. And to, says St. Thomas, that is sort of the, the, the occasion 
for the Holy Spirit to then work on their soul. Yeah. And, and that's how you and I become cooperators with the grace of God in helping with intellectual formation, giving those reasons, all the while you and I are begging God, give them the grace. <laughs> give them the grace of conversion. Yeah, open the, be with that. Open the eyes of their hearts as, you know, Ephesians 1, I think it's verse 17 and 18 where St. Paul says that the eyes of your understanding or the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened. Man, that says it all about what we're called to do in this uh, evangelism that we're called to and engaging a culture that has be, we're, we're basically neo-pay I think it was Cardinal Ratzinger in his book In the Beginning uh, where he makes the point that we're, we're dealing with a neo-pagan culture yeah. today we're no longer dealing with a Christian culture and, and I think no. Pope Francis in his uh, Evangelii Gaudium section 132 where Pope Francis says we need to uh, develop a new and creative apologetic for a culture that has lost the faith. He's right on, man. Yeah. And, and most importantly, we've got to engage. And, and we at Catholic Answers are here to, here to help folks. You know, we've got a lot of the tools uh, available to you at Catholic.com that can help you to be able to evangelize this Absolutely. crazy culture of ours. And you said some really great things that really, they hit home with me because um, – Within even the church, when we have pastors who aren't teaching the gospel truth, yes. there are you know that's another one of those things that yes. drives people away. And you know, as we've been talking about, you know what what is it? You know, I I've recently encountered in the last six months. I'm not going to name names, yeah. um, but there have been two different priests that um, I've heard homilies that were what I would call a watered-down gospel. Now, I'll give you my thoughts, and you, you pick them apart. You tell me what you think. Sure. But I think that sometimes people do that because, one, it's the way that they were catechized. Yeah. And, two, they think that by making the gospels more palatable oh, yeah. towards the everyman, well, then more people will come to it. Right. The problem with that is... Preaching a false gospel is never a good thing. <laughs> That's right. And so here's my oh. examples. Um, you know, you've heard, and probably everybody has heard somebody at one point, you know, give a, give a sermon about, well, the, the multiplication of loaves was really just about teaching them how to share and stuff like that. And, yeah. But also recently, I, you know, I heard a homily where um, the priest said that um, Jesus didn't really walk on water, oh, that um, almost all... Almost all theologians agree that this was written in later on to basically help us as Christians to get through the hard times. Now, here's my thoughts, and then you please give me all of yours. Sure, yeah. If we do that and we lose the miracles of Christ, then we lose his divinity. Yes. If we lose the divinity of Christ, then we lose our salvation. Amen. I, so one, one, two questions, I guess, for you. Yeah. One— what can you tell us about the um, historical reliability of the Gospels? Yes. Um, and two, you know, what can we know about the truth of when the writers wrote this, they weren't just making words up for Jesus. Like yeah. when Jesus speaks, Jesus really speaks. That's and right. when he does something, he really did it. Yeah, yeah. It's funny, you know, the catechism of the Catholic Church, which normally catechisms don't get into minutiae. <laughs> so much mm -hmm. of but there's actually in the section on the Eucharist which is my gosh 
it's beyond incredible. When you look, I, I think it's yeah. right around 1319 to 1422, right in there. In that section of the catechism, it is so – the whole catechism is rich, but it is so rich. But there's actually a little section in there where it, it blows that argument away, you know, that, that uh, you know, it's just Jesus – he excited people, and they opened up and, hey, we have some extra bread, and we have some <laughs> extra bread, and that was the quote-unquote miracle. Of course, the church says, says no. That was a Eucharistic miracle in preparation for his – in John's version, in preparation for his Eucharistic discourse where he proclaims the ultimate miracle, even though you know the yeah. Eucharist isn't technically a miracle in as much as miracles – strictly speaking, are visible and have a, a purpose, a visible miracle to point you toward the invisible. Um, here, sacraments kind of invert that yeah. because it it what you see is not what you get. It, it's yeah. kind of the opposite. <laughs> but there is – but t- – there, there. So strictly speaking, yeah, may, may not be the strict miracle, but there is a miracle in as much as we have uh, a substance that's inhering in nothing. There is a miracle involved here. It's, but it's a miracle of faith. So anyway, the whole point is that Jesus performs the miracle, pointing us to the ultimate miracle, which is the Eucharist, yeah. and is our salvation. Now, isn't it something that? These same guys, some of them, and I'm thinking of one Jesuit priest. I actually wrote an article against this fellow, and I, too, don't like to name names. Uh, I only do that on very rare rare occasion. Uh, I like to get to the substance of the arguments rather than bringing in personalities to yeah. it. That's just me. But uh, th- this particular priest, not only would he deny the miracles uh, of John 6, and it's also in Mark 6, and it's in Matthew 14 as well, the great multiplication of the loaves story. Um, but he also gets to, well, when it comes to the Eucharist, transubstantiation. What is that? I don't even know what substance is, he says. So what is substance? It's it's untenable. And, and so... I've just rejected it, right? And so, well, if you reject trans, isn't that something you you rejected miracles, mm-hmm. right? And now you've rejected transubstantiation, which is the miracle that undergirds the Eucharist. And what do you have left? You have nothing. Yeah. You might as well go and join the Anglicans or the Protestants or 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 whatever. So this, in my way of thinking, is demonic. Yeah. This is a satanic assault against the heart of the gospel and the very foundation of our Christian Catholic Christian faith. Because miracles, my friend, is at the foundation of our Catholic Christian faith, the supernatural. Because look, in order to – you and I – I say this often, uh, uh, you know, that when you're baptized, you've gotten in over your head, right? <laughs> Basically, because what you you are baptized into Jesus Christ, and your your goal is a supernatural goal. It transcends your ability as a human being. I can't get to my goal, and so baptism gives me supernatural power to empower me to go beyond nature. 
to get to my goal of everlasting life. In order to get to heaven, we need supernatural power. We need miracles. And that's what Jesus was all about, you know, was performing miracles to prove. You know, in John chapter 10, verse 30, when he says, I and the Father are one, they pick up rocks to kill him. Yeah. What in the world? You, you just made yourself. And what does Jesus say? If you skip down to verses 37 and 38, Jesus basically responds by saying, you know, my, I'll transliterate here. <laughs> but uh, he basically says, yeah, I know what I just said is, sounds crazy. <laughs> you don't hear every week, hey, guys, I'm God. But what does he say? He says, if you can't believe my words, believe for the works sake, right? If you can't believe that I'm God, have you seen anybody else walk on water, Mm -hmm. right? Now, you mentioned that priest saying he didn't really walk on water. Well, walking on water was something no man had ever done before. This is miraculous. Jesus said, if you can't believe my words, believe for the work's sake. This priest is taking away the works that Jesus points to so you can believe that he's God, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm sure that that priest hasn't made all of these connections, and maybe we need to help him to make those connections. Maybe, so. maybe listen to But this. the bottom line is he says, believe for the word. Have you seen anybody else walk on water lately? Have you seen anybody else control nature like I have done? And it's not and, – and the amazing thing about Jesus is he doesn't just call on God, but he says, he I can. say – I say, arise and walk. He commands, peace be still. This is why, you know, when Jesus calmed the storm and he steps into the boat there in Mark chapter 6, what is that, around verses uh, 47, 51 through 52, when he steps into the boat and and the storm calms, the Bible says the apostles were more afraid of him than they were of the storm. Why? Because they know that God is the God of who can calm the storm. A man can't do this. Jesus does this by his own power as well as, you know, as man, of course, he's an instrument of of Mm -hmm. God. But as God, he can also act on his own authority, and he does that to reveal his his divinity. So I guess that's my long-winded way of saying that that is, is so demonic because you're denying you're you're denying the very thing the miracles of Jesus that Jesus says himself in John 10:37 and 38 they are the guarantor that he is who he says he is yeah. oh my goodness absolutely. and you're going to take that away absolutely you know and I, so i like to um defer to people who are a lot more intelligent than I am. Um, and you probably know Dr. Brant Petrie. Oh, yes. Um, so he did a great... He's amazing. Um, yeah, he's done a lot of great stuff. But uh, something that uh, I used to go over a lot in my classes even is that uh, he had these different um, responses with a guy named Bart Ehrman. Bart oh, Ehrman yes. was an agnostic. Yes. And funny enough, this is exactly what uh, Dr. Petrie used um, to answer those claims because Bart Ehrman, he couldn't deny that in the Gospel of John, like Christ just says, yeah, I'm God. I mean, it's, right. it's pretty clear. So he actually said, well, we can't use that one because it was written too late. So we're going to use the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in there, he doesn't say that he's God. And Dr. Petrie said, oh, wait a minute. Oh, yes, he Wait does. a minute. He says, he does, 
But also, you're not looking at it in the right way. He says one of the ways that he does is by performing these miracles. That's right. He, he said, you're expecting him to walk around shouting, hey, I'm God, and just have everybody believe him. Yeah. Instead, and this is kind of funny because we do live in that world where everybody's like, prove it. Yeah. Show me. <laughs> and, like, and so the, I love it because that's what Dr. Petrie did was he went through all of those miracles to show this is how Jesus showed that when he proclaimed the Father and I are one, yeah. he knew what he was talking about and he meant it. And so, yes. yeah, I think that brings us back to, you know, if we um, – I find it to be a heretical view that if we st- – try to proclaim that Christ didn't actually do these miracles, that we're trying to destroy what he came to show us. Absolutely. And I I would say to Bart Ehrman, he needs to read a wonderful book I read quite a few years ago now, but it had such an impact on me. And by the way, it had an impact on on our uh, Pope Benedict XVI as well. It's called A Rabbi Speaks with Jesus. And it's... uh, written by one of the greatest minds in Judaism today, a, and I don't even know if he's still alive, but he, if he is, he's probably 90-something years old. But this rabbi, it, what's phenomenal about it is he uses the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, he won't use John because he, he says John is anti-Semite, right, in, okay. in his mind. Gotcha. Anyway, uh, but Matthew's Gospel. And he shows, in fact, the whole book. Uh, it's, it's Rabbi Neusner, Rabbi Jacob Neusner, who is a brilliant mind. He's written over a hundred books. He, he individ- by himself edited the entire Babylonian Talmud by himself. I mean, what, I mean, it's phenomenal. It's like bigger than the Encyclopedia Britannica. He edited the whole thing. The man is an absolute genius. But in the book, he basically shows how that Jesus, who walked 2,000 years ago, and he acknowledges, you can't deny this man walked the earth 2,000 years ago, and this is generally what he said and did. Here's a Jewish rabbi, but he says, in Matthew, Jesus teaches that he is God, right? Did you hear that, Mr. Ehrman? This is a rabbi, and he says, and, and he gives many examples, but here's one I think that you'll like. That really grabbed uh, Rabbi Jacob Neusner is in the Sermon on the Mount when he says over and over, I think it's five, is it five or six times, you have heard it said, but I say unto you, uh-huh. right? And he says he's basically, now he would say correcting. He wasn't really correcting. He was fulfilling. But for Neusner, he's correcting the Talmud. I mean, not the Talmud, the Torah. He's, oh, oh, and wow. nobody, nobody can that. do that <laughs> except God. God, right? And, of course, we would cr- we'd tweak that a little bit because he doesn't really correct. He fulfills. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, but one of the, the great I- examples that he, he pulls out there is in uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 and 44. Where, because some will argue that, well, he wasn't really correcting or fulfilling the Torah. He was correcting traditions. You'll see Protestant scholars will say this. He's, he's correcting false traditions. He's not, it's not actually in Scripture. Rabbi Neusner says, uh-uh, because if you look at, for example, uh, again at Matthew 5, 43 and 44, he says, you have heard it said, uh, love your neighbor— hate your enemy. 
But I say unto you, love your enemies, right? Do good to those and pray for those who spitefully use you and so forth. And by the way, for our Baptist friends, in order that you may be sons of your father. This is for salvation. This isn't just for jewels in your crown. This is yeah. determines whether you're going to make it to heaven or not. You Loving your enemy is not an option. But the point is, he is quoting the Psalms, for example, where, where King David, I, I want to say, is that Psalm 139, I believe, where David famously, uh, I may have the wrong Psalm there, but where David famously says, Lord, help me to hate with a perfect hatred, to hate your enemies, right? And, and test my heart and see if there's any wrong in me, right? Wow, what? That's what David says. And, and we, you and I know that on a natural level, there's nothing wrong with hatred because hatred, it means a, a, an aversion toward anything that would keep me from God. Mm-hmm. That, that's a hatred on a natural level that, that, that's not wrong, but Jesus calls us to something greater, right? So he's not saying David was wrong to pray that way, but he is <laughs> introducing a whole other order through his life, death, burial, and resurrection, where he empowers us to love as he loved. He's calling us to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, who you know causes the rain to fall and the good and the evil. He's calling us to love in a way that our natures cannot. Mm-hmm. We, we have to go beyond. That's why he said in that same Sermon on the Mount, unless you're righteous, what is that, Matthew 5, 20? Unless your righteousness you know, exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven, right? Because their righteousness can only go to the natural point. We have to go to the supernatural. We have to go beyond. But the point I'm making here, to correct Mr. Ehrman, is that Jesus is referring to that psalm, and he is saying, no longer. I say to you. So he is fulfilling and taking us to a new level. Only God can do that. And he does it like five or six different times. You have heard it said, but I say to you. But that one is directly referring to texts in the Old Testament and saying, uh, I'm taking this to a, a new level. And how many times does Jesus say, you know, in Mark chapter 2, verse 28, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath, right? Yeah. Wait a minute. The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath, and that's in Mark. That's also in Matthew. No wonder they wanted to kill him. Yeah, because Exodus chapter 20, verse 10, and a whole slew of verses says, Yahweh is the Lord of the Sabbath. Right. But Jesus says, hey, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. How are you, right? But, you know, you know to get back to, to this, this underlying point we're making here is – Our faith is one of supernatural faith. This is what it's all about. But my friend, if we're not living it, that's what was so devastating about the the pre-scandals. And, you know, we can say, and we should, you don't leave Peter because of Judas. You know, and, and would anybody reject medicine, right? Let's say somebody dies of some disease and you blame the medicine. And you say, well, did the guy take the medicine? Well, no, he didn't. Well, how in the world? Why are you blaming the medicine when he didn't even take the medicine? I mean, it's, it's, it's irrational to blame the faith when people who fall 
are not living up to the faith. Correct. Why would you fault the faith when these people weren't living it? But the bottom line is we need to be other Jesuses. And, and Jesus said to Thomas, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You know, Jesus is the one who said, they will see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven, again, in the Sermon on the Mount. And man, that's why I I say right now, the best thing you and I can do to further the the call to the new evangelism that Pope John Paul calls us to is to get on our knees and beg God for his grace and mercy. Wow. What a blessing. What a message. Man, it's been great sitting here with you. I wish we had about three hours or so. <sighs> Me too. <laughs> it would be fantastic. Yes. But, uh, you know, pray for all of our listeners out there. Thank you for being here with us. Um, we'll pray for you and your ministry. Thank you, brother. And uh, we, we really thank you for being here in our community. God bless you. Uh, thank you for your time. Thanks for tuning in to One Body Stewarding God's Creation. You're listening to the network of stations of Divine Mercy Radio. If today you hear His voice, Harden not your hearts.